I wonder if you've ever thought that sometimes it seems the gospel writers don't ever tire in telling us about so many similar events in the life of the Lord Jesus that for some people perhaps might find begin to be rather repetitive. Why is it that these gospel writers don't seem to become bored at repeating the same things over and over again as they recall the life and ministry of Jesus? Why is it they don't think, well, I've already, I've already mentioned something like that, so I'll skip that bit out because it's very repetitive. No, they tell us again and again of the things that Jesus is doing. Well, might it be that becoming tired of hearing about it, if you are, and finding it all rather repetitive and boring, if you do, is actually a symptom of the state of your heart and actually is revealing to you something about your own heart. Whereas for Matthew, for Mark, for Luke, for John, they are just lost in the wonder of it all. Why would we not recall these, these similar things over and over again as they de demonstrate so clearly how wonderful this Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, truly is? If you'd been there and witnessed all of these things, well, perhaps you'd be queuing up with others to retell this episode or that. Don't you remember when? Wasn't it amazing when? Don't forget about when he did this. And if someone's already mentioned the time when he fed 5,000, I'm going to make sure you don't forget the time when he fed 4,000. It doesn't enter Matthew's reasoning not to mention the feeding of the 4,000. Well, I've already told of the 5,000, so what's the point? No, this has to be told also. They have this overwhelming burden that you come to understand who this Jesus is. And there's something new, actually, to learn in every event. As they wrote down their accounts some years later, these gospel writers perhaps wonder, bemused at how long it took them to fully see and understand and grasp these truths about the Saviour, but they long that you and I would do so. So as we find ourselves covering what seems to be quite familiar territory in these verses this morning, I want to place this question before you. Might it be that you still have not understood? Have you still not understood who this Jesus is? Well, my prayer is that every single one of us, we will find that God in the person of his Holy Spirit will open up our hearts and our minds to these great truths and to comprehend the wonder of it all that Jesus is doing here and to give God the praise and the glory that he truly is due. Well, last week we saw Jesus up on the Mediterranean coast in the region back then known as Phoenicia, today we know it as the country of Lebanon, where he had an encounter with a woman of Canaan whose daughter was demon-possessed. 
And now in verse 29, we see that Jesus has returned from that region and he's come to the more familiar surroundings of the Sea of Galilee, an area that he knows well. And the first lesson I want us to consider this morning from this passage is the abundant compassion and mercy that Jesus has for the undeserving. Abundant compassion and mercy for the undeserving. Now the exact location isn't given to us by Matthew, but Jesus is in one of his favoured places for ministering to large crowds of people. He's up on a mountainside. But we do actually learn from Mark in chapter 7 of his gospel record that they're in or near an area known as Decapolis. Now Decapolis was originally ten major cities that came together in some form of regional union with one another. The exact nature of it isn't clear, but this was a region which was mostly just to the south of the Sea of Galilee and predominantly on the eastern side of the River Jordan. Do you remember that story of the demon-possessed man who said his name was Legion, for we are many? And Jesus cast out the demons into a herd of pigs, which then ran into the lake and were drowned. Well, that man wants clothed and in his right mind. He wants to follow after Jesus and go with him. But Jesus says, no, you need to return home and tell all your family and friends what I have done for you today. And we're told that that man came from Decapolis. And off he went to tell everyone what Jesus had done for him. So the people in this area know of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus first began ministering after his meeting with John the Baptist at the Jordan River, we are told that many from Decapolis came to hear him. So Jesus is known by these people. And many who live in this particular region are actually Gentiles by birth, not Israelites. So the, this Gentile theme is actually continuing in this story. The woman that he met up on the coast was a Gentile woman. And now the majority of these people that Jesus is going to deal with still are Gentile people. And so Jesus in this majority Gentile area is going to demonstrate exactly the same kind of compassion and mercy that he's been showing to all the people of Israel. And that's a really important point. He's wanting to open the eyes of Israel, for one thing, to see and understand that he isn't just their Messiah. He's the saviour the whole world needs. He's the saviour for the whole world. He's come to save the whole world. He's the saviour you need. And the people of Decapolis, well, they all hear that he's back in their neck of the woods, and so they seek him out. And they seek him out in order that he might do for them what they think is the greatest thing he can do for them. Well, what do you think maybe that this miracle work of Jesus could do for you that would be the greatest thing that he would do for you? Maybe things connected with your worldly condition and circumstances Maybe things relating to your current lot in life. Maybe this Jesus can improve all of those things. Maybe Jesus can make all of those kinds of things better. 
the kind of life that I live, the kind of job that I have, the kind of relationships that I have, and uh, all, of the, all of the stuff of this world which I think will make me secure and content. Maybe this Jesus can help me with all of those kinds of things. Well, these are the kinds of issues that we are so readily taken up with, aren't they? These are the things that people want to secure and improve. These are the things that people value and prize. These are the kinds of things that people devote themselves to and work hard for. Our worldly condition, our worldly circumstances. The problem, though, is that in doing so, nine times out of ten, they completely overlook something far greater and something of much greater importance. These people are, are quick and ready to run to him for what? For physical health. Now, we're not at all surprised by this. Who wouldn't run to Jesus, given his track record and his success rate in dealing with ill people? What a priority continues to be placed on this today for us, to be rid of all sickness. More money for the NHS, more doctors, more nurses, more money for cancer research. Now, no one wants to see people suffering. We would all like to remain healthy. How thankful we are to God that it is possible to deal with many forms of illness. There's nothing wrong with that at all. However, good health is not the greatest of blessings that God has in store for you. And a cure for ill health is not your greatest need. Now even though, in terms of these people who come to Jesus on this occasion, their main concern is for the physical, we do note that Jesus nevertheless does show them great compassion. And he heals the many forms of disease and bodily disfigurement that are placed in front of him. He will shortly feed them all as well. And so Jesus does provide us with a pattern to follow in being compassionate to those who are in need. Surely he does. But let's not forget that back in chapter 9 of Matthew, Jesus emphasizes that his being able to deal with physical infirmity is intended to demonstrate that his is divine power and authority. And that if he is God, then in his eyes, even if not in your own eyes right now, you have a far greater need that he is able to deal with. And that is the real purpose for his coming into the world. And his compassion on these people and his concern to heal them of their physical ailments is intended to show you and demonstrate to you that this Saviour can do for you an even greater thing. He can show you an even greater love and an even greater compassion. In the words of our beloved former Bishop of Liverpool from a century ago, he said this, Let us, however, not 
forget that our souls are far more diseased than our bodies and learn a lesson from the conduct of these people. Our souls are afflicted with a malady far more deep-seated, far more complicated, far more hard to cure than any ailment of the flesh. Our souls are plague-stricken by sin. They must be healed. And they must be healed effectually, or they will perish everlastingly. Do we really know this? Do you really know this, he asks? Do we feel it? Are we alive to our spiritual disease? Alas, he says, there is but one answer to these questions. The bulk of mankind do not feel it at all. Their eyes are blinded. They are utterly insensible to their danger. For bodily health, they crowd the waiting rooms of doctors. But for their soul's health, they take no thought at all. Is that you this morning? Happy indeed is that man or woman who has found out his soul's disease. Life, life eternal is at stake. They will count all things loss that they may win Christ and be healed. Have you still not understood? I don't know how much deeper or further these people in our story were able to see or understand the true things of Christ. But they did know this. And remember, these were largely Gentile people. They did understand this at the end of it all. What we read there is that they understood that the God of Israel is in this. And they glorified him. Now, did they attribute that honor directly to Christ? Well, I'm not sure. It's not entirely clear from the text. But they could see that such miraculous works could not be of human origin. They could never be. And that was the whole point of such signs. This is the true and living God at work amongst us. That they could say, and they worshipped God for it. And that's what makes it so heartbreaking when people reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you someone, and well right now to be honest, you are far more concerned about your bodily health. Maybe the big concern on your mind at the moment is your financial health in the current circumstances far more interested to get good counsel from a financial advisor than you are to get spiritual counsel from the Word of God. Are you someone who's far more interested in seeing wholeness for your body than wholeness for your soul? Are you someone who's more concerned about academic success than spiritual well-being? 
Well, Jesus would speak to you today and say there are things that you need to get right before him. The one who healed those many different bodily diseases, there was nothing brought before him that he couldn't deal with. By the very healing of those extreme affirmities that were brought before him, he is showing that he is the only one who can heal souls, no matter how severe the disease of your soul may be. Christ can bring the healing you need. There's no condition of the heart that Christ cannot cure. The sinner who once ridiculed and blasphemed the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ can put a new song in their heart. He'll do it in yours if you'll turn to him. The blind are made to see, the deaf are made to hear that they might see and hear the message of the gospel and follow Christ. Those who once walked the broad road which leads only to destruction are given power to walk the way of life. Is that you this morning? Bodies that once were instruments of great sinfulness may now serve the Lord and do his will. None of the miracles that Jesus performed on that mountainside were any greater than the miracle of conversion. Indeed, is not the conversion of the soul an even greater miracle? That a man or woman, a boy or a girl, may be given a new heart and a new nature and life that will last forever. Can you name a miracle greater than that? Jesus still receives sinners. And Jesus still is mighty to heal. Just as those people recognize their physical need, those who understand the desperate plight of their soul may still come to Christ. He's still the great physician. And you will find healing and peace and rest. Acknowledge your sin. Be grieved over your sin. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And will it be worth it? Oh, yes, it will. Because, secondly, Jesus is the Savior who keeps on giving. He's the Savior who keeps on giving. Now, as we turn to verses 32 to 38, with this account of another feeding of a vast multitude, you'll find a few Bible scholars and not a few critics who try to suggest that verses 32 to 38 are nothing more but a muddled retelling of the feeding of the 5,000 in the previous chapter. But it would be strange for Matthew to make such an error given that he was one of the twelve disciples on both occasions who helped to distribute the bread and the fish. And he was one of the twelve disciples on both occasions who walked around gathering up all the scraps into baskets. It would be rather strange for him to have got his thoughts muddled over such momentous events. Now, you'll notice, of course, that some of the numbers are different between the two accounts. Here it's 4,000 plus women and children, 
previously, it was 5,000. Here it's seven loaves rather than five. A few little fish rather than a definite number. At the end, seven large baskets as opposed to 12 regular baskets. The, the Greek word for baskets is different in both accounts. And the word that's used here is of large hamper-like baskets. They, they were bigger, although only seven. Mark also agrees with Matthew in these details. And Mark's gospel is drawn primarily from the, the, the testimony of Simon Peter. And if you look ahead into chapter 16, you'll find Jesus himself making reference to both events. These are two events distinct from each other, although they have these great similarities. One of the main differences between the two events is that we saw in the feeding of the 5,000, it's the disciples coming to Jesus who get the ball rolling. They say to him, it's a deserted place, the hour is already late, send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Here, it's Jesus himself who instigates the need to feed them. Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude. They've been with me three days. They've nothing to eat. Hang on a minute. Three days. Verses 30 and 31 cover a period of three days. It's the kind of detail that isn't always provided. We can find ourselves jumping to our own conclusions over details like this when we're not actually told. And it surely demonstrates something of the extent of Christ's ministry. Verse 30, he was a big crowd, he healed the sick, and we can almost skirt over it. Yeah, we've heard that before. But three days... Just think of it. What endurance and long-suffering Christ has. What patience, what grace, what mercy. What love he has that he would give himself so intensely, so fully, again and again and again as more people just keep coming, keep coming, keep coming for three days dealing with all of these people. Have you ever been in a situation yourself where you felt you've been generous enough? You've given enough. And no one should now expect that I should give any more. Indeed, you would point to what you've already contributed to justify why you shouldn't be expected to do any more. I've done my fair share already. And it would be completely unreasonable for you to expect or claim that I should now do even more. Uh, maybe you already feel that you're someone and people are exploiting your generous spirit to require even more from you. Look to the Saviour. 
three whole days. And his compassion hasn't wavered one bit. Not once. Every individual that comes to him, he receives them. He's filled with compassion towards them. And Jesus wants to do more for them. Now he wants to feed them. Now a lesser man than Jesus might be saying, look, just take on board what it is I've already done for you. Don't you think you should just be so very thankful for what you've already received and get yourself off home? Don't you think I've actually done quite enough for you already? But there's none of that in Christ. He's just filled with compassion. And he just keeps on giving. He sees them in their weakness. He sees them in their vulnerability. He's watched as so many of them have waited their turn. I wonder, maybe it was a bit like that big long queue of people waiting to pay their respects to the Queen. And Jesus looks and there's just people, people, people. And most of them have been there for three whole days. And any provisions such as they may have had, they've long been used up. They're weary. And they're hungry, as if Jesus isn't. And he can have only one response. He's just moved with compassion. I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. What a saviour this is. What an example he is for us. How many of us would want to reply, Jesus, that's their problem. That's their problem. Notice this about Christ. He makes their problem his problem. And that's a really important aspect of Christ's character. Because not only did he make their problem his problem that day, he has made your sin his sin on the cross. He made your guilt his guilt. He made your punishment his punishment. He made your death that you deserve his death, and he makes his righteousness your righteousness. Because this is the kind of saviour he is. And he just keeps on giving. And he's filled with compassion that will never fail. There is none with compassion like his. And for us who know him, he is our example for us to model our lives on. Where others would draw the line and say, enough. He just goes on loving and giving. And aren't you thankful that he does? Are there any here this morning 
and still you have not understood. Matthew would have you understand this Savior in all his glory, in all his wonder, in all his mercy, in all his grace, as he deals with these people. For so he, will, so he is ready to deal with you. And then amazingly, thirdly, we discover that the disciples who are still not learning. Verse 33. Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? At the very most, it's just a couple of months since the 5,000 were fed. Perhaps they can even count it only in weeks. Yet, do they somehow, do they somehow, have, somehow have collective amnesia when you read verse 33? Uh, Jesus, how are we going to fill a, gr- a vast crowd like this when actually it's not even as big as the last one? How will we ever have enough bread to feed this lot? Can men really be so dull of learning? Can they really be so slow to learn and quick to forget? Much too easily. Much too easily is the answer. Let us not be like them. And then there unfolds this scene, so similar to the last one, as Jesus miraculously provides for this vast multitude by means of seven loaves and a few little fish. It's just a little fish. What use is just a little fish? I wonder if you sometimes grow anxious thinking, what could Jesus accomplish with the likes of me? You're not alone in thinking that. A few little fish. But look at the size of the need. How meagre, how insignificant a few little fish seem to be. Not once they're placed into the master's hands. Those few little fish achieve the impossible once they're placed in the master's hands. Those same hands hold you, dear Christian friend. You're in the master's hand. Maybe some of you aren't this morning but you can be. You can be held in the Master's hands and used of Him. There is a wideness in God's mercy. At the time this event took place, the disciples of Jesus have yet to fully grasp it. Maybe that's true of you, but there is a wideness in God's mercy. There is a depth to his compassion that is deeper than they understand. 
Christ would have you witness that compassion for yourself this morning from off the page of Scripture. He would have you be assured that if you will place your life in His hands, you will be safe for all eternity. And what great things He can do with you and for you and through you once you're in His hands. His love is deep enough to cause blind eyes to see and to set the lowly, captive heart free from sin. Has He done it for you? He can do it even now. His grace and His mercy and His compassion still flow from heaven to sinners. He's still the Savior who keeps on giving. Have you still not understood? Oh, Father, that you would help each one of us take it in this morning. That we might receive from Christ that which only Christ may give.